Our Father in heaven, we praise you. We thank you so much for the wonderful gift of life. We thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. And we come to you at, that, at this time seeking your amazing grace for the various needs of our own personal lives. And we're asking you, Father, to do a miracle. Show forth your power in our homes. Help us to see the power of the everlasting gospel in a family. We pray, dear God, that you will forgive us of our sins and that you'll grant us your Holy Spirit who is the only effectual teacher of truth. Make your words plain to us today. And at the end of it, may we climb just a little higher upon Jacob's ladder. It's our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, one of the great things that I am very thankful for is the privilege of knowing the true and living God. It makes you walk different. It makes you talk different. It makes you think different. Jeremiah, the incredible prophet of God, said, listen, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. But he says, but listen, if anybody is going to boast, he said, let him glory in this, that he understands and that he knows God himself. It is a privilege when you can begin to understand the voice of your heavenly father. When you can know God is speaking. And he's not just speaking to a world. As Brother Carducci made it very clear in Sabbath school, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me personally. I have the attention of the master and the creator of the universe. This is what Adam and Eve had in the very beginning of time. Can you imagine that? In fact, the Bible shows us something so beautiful, and I want you to see it in Genesis, the third chapter. Go to Genesis 3 with me. And I want you to see the high privilege that Adam and Eve had in knowing God, their creator, the master of the universe. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, the third chapter, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. There is a point in this verse, in fact, if you look back at Genesis 2, go, but you know, just right there, I'm sure you're still there, but look, just consider Genesis 2, right? God created man in his image and in his likeness, and the Bible says something that's very strange. It's actually only mentioned once, if I'm correct, in the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, what does it say in verse 25? It says in Genesis 2, 25, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Do you know that I don't know of any other inference in the Bible where it says that. That we can be before God naked, but not ashamed. 
When you study the Bible carefully, nakedness and shame actually go together. Last night, we talked about Laodicea in Revelation 3. They think they're all right when they're all wrong. And it says that one of the symptoms of that disease was nakedness. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what did God counsel them in verse 18? He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. And then he said, and also white raiment, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. You get that? Nakedness and shame go together in Scripture. It was Isaiah that he was recounting the Chaldean armies that was coming through to take the Israelites captive, but in the promise of the word of God that eventually they'll be brought out of that bondage in a mighty hand, God began to say in Isaiah 47, verses 1 to 3, God began to talk about how, go through the waters, you daughters of the Chaldeans. It says, uncover thy locks, if you're talking about the King James. It says, uncover thy locks. The word locks is better termed veil in the Hebrew. Take off your veil. Then it says, uncover, make bare your legs and uncover your thigh. God was telling these daughters of the Chaldeans, go through these waters. He says, I want you to remove your veil. The veil was something that was worn on the head, and what it would do is it would go from the head over the woman's hair, and then it would go right over her chest area. So when God would say, uncover the veil, it was removing that so the nakedness of their breast area would be seen. Then he would say, make bare your leg, uncover your thigh, go through the waters. And he says, your nakedness shall go before you, yea, your shame shall be seen. Nakedness and shame go together in the Bible. But Adam and Eve, as a result of being covered with the glory of God, they were able to be naked and not ashamed. You see, all of us in this room, we're naked right now. We're naked. But the reason we're not ashamed is because we got something covering our nakedness, and it's called clothing. You get that? Under these clothing, we're all naked. Would you agree? But you're not ashamed about that because you have a covering. Adam and Eve were naked, but not ashamed because they had a covering. God was covering them with the beautiful light, the glory of his garments of righteousness. But by the time you get to Genesis 3, what does it say happened in verse 7? The Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 3, right there in verse 7, it says, and the eyes of them both were open, and now they know that they're naked. Do you see that? Their eyes are open now. Why? Because whatever they had, they lost it. Once they chose to sin, once they chose to join sides with the rebel leader, they lost their covering. They were naked. Their eyes are open. They know that they were naked. And then instead of repenting, they tried to cover up their nakedness with their own works. They said, let's go ahead and let's make our own coverings. A lot of people today, what was that covering called in Scripture? It was called an apron. Isn't that right? You know, a lot of us today are wearing Adam's apron. And you can know if you're wearing Adam's apron very easily. Anytime you're convicted of something that you're doing wrong against the will of God. If you got a conviction even for a hot second. 
That, I assure you, was not the devil. The devil has no interest in pricking your heart and my heart to say, you know that this is sinful, you know that this is wrong. The Bible doesn't leave us aloof to then, if it's not Satan, then who is it? It's in John 16. Right there in John 16, the Bible tells us who it is. The Bible says in John 16, go there, you can go ahead and move from Genesis 3. Well, in fact, keep your finger on Genesis 3. We're going to peek back there in a second. But right there in John, the 16th chapter, you don't have to wonder who it is. It's not Satan that is convicting us of our sins. The Bible tells us who it is in John, the 16th chapter. If you're there, let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in John, the 16th chapter right there in verse 8, talking about the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. It says in verse 8, and when he is come, he will do what? He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. My brothers and sisters, there's no way that we can see our sins except it be by the Spirit of God making it known to us. There's no way that we can see Christ, our righteousness, except it be by the Spirit of God making it known to us. Talk about our need for the Holy Spirit. Anytime we get that prick, what you just said to your wife was not right. You need to go ahead and fix that. You need to apologize. How you just spoke to your husband, that was not right. You need to go ahead and you need to reconcile. How you just spoke to your brother or to your sister or whoever it is in your family, whatever you just did right there, that was not right. That, that unsettling feeling, that voice that is going through our frontal lobe, my brothers and sisters, whenever that happens, that is not Satan bringing on that conviction. That is none other than God. And the Spirit of God always brings it to our attention that we might repent, that we might make that wrong right, that we will go to God and say, Lord, forgive me, have mercy upon me. And then we go to that individual whom we have offended and we say, my husband, my wife, my children, my son, my daughter, whoever it is, please forgive me. I am sorry. God is all about reconciliation. But Adam and Eve didn't do that. Adam and Eve had an opportunity because I can guarantee you when their eyes were open, they knew that they were naked. The spirit of God was letting them know you just did something wrong. You need to make it right. But instead of them repenting, turning away from their wrong, going to God, confessing their sin, acknowledging their fault and seeking his grace. Instead, what did they try to do? They tried to make up their own covering. You ever tried to cover up your wrongdoings? The way that we can know that Adam's apron is going on is whenever that voice pricks us and lets us know you just messed up, you just did something wrong, that wasn't even right. How you just spoke to your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your brothers or sisters, what you just did to your fellow brother or sister, even in the church. God says once that prick comes to us, that is God letting us know, don't put on that apron. Don't try to do some work or some deed or even some quote unquote good deed to try to hush the voice of guilt and not seek the Savior. Many of us today are wearing Adam's apron because we know we are hearing God speak. And you know what's so sad? We can get to a place, my family, that we can tune God out. It's the most frightening thought. We were having worship in our home the other day, and 
It's just this past week, and I remember I was talking to my son and daughter. Um, the rest of my family were out, and we were having worship. And I remember we were talking about this, and I said, children, I said, I am discovering more and more every day. It is a fearful thing to reject God. Yes, we were talking about Pilate. We were going through Matthew 27, and we were talking about Pilate. Pilate, he didn't even realize that he was, if I may use this term, blowing his own self up. He was making it known what he was doing wrong. They go to Pilate and they say, we want this man Jesus dead. We want him killed. His wife was the first witness. His wife comes and says, listen, I had a dream about that man. And she didn't refer to him as that man, did she? She said that just man. Another word for just is righteous. His wife was telling him, I had a dream about this righteous man. Don't do it. Then Pilate himself, he himself has a dialogue with Jesus. And when he had a dialogue with Jesus, it is hard. You know, one thing I've learned about people, I've learned to do this. I learned to do it a long time ago. Probably learned it for the wrong reasons. You know, I was, used to be in business and all this stuff. So I learned a long time ago the power of looking someone in their eyes when you're talking to them. And so I, I know how to talk to people. And when I'm talking to them, I can look them straight in the eyes. And as they're talking, I just look at them in their eyes. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not trying to like hypnotize them or anything. But I mean, I, I, I believe it is a sign of respect that when I'm talking to somebody, I look them in their face like, yes, okay, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, my eyes are fixed right on them. God had to help me train my mind to do that. But what I've learned is sometimes when we are fearful, deceptive, embarrassed, or any of these type of negative elements, one of the hardest things in the world to do is to look somebody in their eyes. Have you ever noticed that? It's hard. It's hard to look somebody in the eyes. It's almost like there's something that's being revealed or we are revealing. Pilate is looking Jesus in his eyes. And Jesus is looking back at Pilate. And by way, and I don't know if you've seen this, there's actually a movement right now. I kind of marvel at it. I don't know if y'all seen this, but there's a movement right now that thousands, how many? Thousands of people line up in a religious type. I wish so much I could remember his name. This is real. This is happening right now, 2018. There is a man who has become famous, and people get on lines by hundreds and thousands just to come into the venue. And all he does when he comes in the venue, true story, All he does when he comes in the venue is he walks in. And he just looks at you. And people literally start, they start crying. They start breaking down. They start feeling, they start experiencing in their minds healing. There's a movement right now. I I wish I could remember the name. I was just watching the video the other day. And I said, boy, we need to get out there and get the third angel. I mean, because, you know, it's just, that, that was the thing that came to my mind. I said, oh, Lord, if we could just get the everlasting gospel. Look at these people. These people are so hungry that they actually think they're fed by staring some man in his face. What if they actually heard the good meat, the good food of these ancient words? Pilate looks at Jesus in his eyes. He asks him, what is truth? And Jesus tells him, and Pilate's convicted again. Pilate goes back out. All right, Barabbas or Jesus and da-da-da, and he goes through that whole exercise, and then he gets to that point, 
where he saw that those people were not going to yield. And so the Bible says, so that he might content the people, he gave them Barabbas and condemned Jesus. And he said his own words of condemnation. I said, Lord, did he even realize what he said? He said, whoosh, I wash my hands of not only this innocent man, but he also said from his own lips this just man. And then he did the thing that a lot of people do. You ever do something wrong, and you know you're wrong, and you know you messed up, and you are convicted, and the message has gotten across to your mind very clearly that what you just did was wrong. But that wicked beast that we're going to study about today, I'll leave the beast nameless, nameless right now. That beast within starts to rise up, and instead of us yielding and repenting, we more boldly do the wrong thing. Even more boldly, we do it now. That's what Pilate did. Pilate's trying to quiet his conscience. So what does Pilate do to quiet his conscience? Pilate says, you know what? I know I did wrong, whatever, but I got to quiet my conscience. So what does Pilate do next? Pilate says, scourge him. Beat him. And then Pilate has Jesus beaten. And then they put his clothes back on and send him out. Adam's apron trying to do something to quiet our conscience, try to do something to make us feel better about the wrong that we did rather than doing simply what God says, repent. As a result of Adam and Eve doing this, the Bible lets us know something that happened. So now let's go back to Genesis 3 and let's watch what happened because this study we're doing today, this thing pricked my heart, had me up last night, Got me up this morning going over different things with my bride from my side. And as my wife and I are talking about our different things, I'm, I'm trying to do left brain, right brain. I'm trying to multitask and think of both things because this thing wouldn't leave my mind. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, we're back there now. What happened? Their eyes are open. They know they're naked. They try to do their own works to cover their sins. And what does it say next? It says now... Verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto Adam, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman. And of course, we start going down this terrible roller drive of making excuses. The woman you created, the serpent you created. And they end up getting kicked out the garden. Beautiful marriage, beautiful relationship, broken because of sin. And the effect of it was dual. It did not just break the heart of Adam to be removed from the garden. It broke the heart of God. We must understand that God hurts when his people choose to do that which is wrong. It hurts him. If somebody were to ask you, what was it that killed Jesus? What's our answer? It was a broken heart, wasn't it? If somebody says, show me that from the Bible, where would you take him? In Psalm 69, notice what the Bible says in verse 20. 
How do we know what actually killed Jesus? The Bible tells us in Psalms, the 69th division, it's actually what we call a messianic psalm. And it's a psalm, yes, of David, but it's speaking about the son of David, Jesus. And the Bible says in Psalm 69, notice what it says right there as we look at verse 20. In Psalm 69 and verse 20, the Bible says, reproach. Jesus literally tells us what killed him. It says in Psalm 69 and verse 20, it says, reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. This is how Jesus' life closed out. All by his lonesome. None of his friends were there to truly be with him and to support him. What was it that killed him? Reproach. It says reproach is what broke his heart. Now, the question is this. Well, what's reproach? Don't you think that's a natural question? Reproach broke his heart, but I don't fully understand what reproach is. So what exactly is it that killed Jesus? Yes, the verse says reproach, but we need to go a little bit deeper. According to the Bible, what does reproach mean? Proverbs chapter 14. In Proverbs, the 14th chapter, we don't have to wonder and we definitely do not have to guess. The Bible makes it clear what reproach is. It was reproach that killed Jesus, and we need to know what reproach is. And the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, we're in what chapter? We're in chapter 14, and I want you to see what it says in verse 34. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, right there in verse 34, it says righteousness does what to a nation? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. What is sin? A reproach. So when it says that reproach has broken my heart, that's not clear enough. What is reproach? Reproach is sin. So what was it that killed Jesus? It was sin. Was it his? No. It was yours. It was mine. It was our sins that killed him. And you know, I always think about this. You know, what do, what do we call a serial killer? What's a serial killer? How do you explain a serial killer? Say again now. Talk to me. Repeated murders. Isn't that right? Now, I want you to think about that. A murderer, a killer is somebody who, you know, for whatever the reason be, a robbery, a crime, or something like that, they kill somebody, they do it once, that person is properly termed a killer or a murderer. But when you kill somebody and then kill another person and then kill another person and then kill another person, and we kind of go on this spree of killing, that is when that person is no longer merely a killer, but now they've earned the term a serial killer. My brothers and sisters, did you know the Bible shows in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6 that every time we choose to sin, we crucify. That's another way of saying kill. We crucify the Son of God afresh and bring him to an open shame. Sin causes pain. This is why God raised up the church. 
And sin does not just cause pain to the one whom we have offended, but it causes pain to us. Every time we sin, we hurt God again. Every time we sin, we hurt ourselves again. Nobody comes out a winner. Now watch this. The reason God raised up the church is so that the church can go and live and tell the truth. Did you know that? Did you know that? Do you know how God defines the church in the Bible? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope you don't mind studying. Do you, do you mind studying? Brother, you don't understand. I really want to study. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to watch what the Bible says. This is what God refers to his church as. I want you to watch this. 1 Timothy, we're going to chapter 3. How does God look at his church? What's the term that he uses? What does he call it by? What does he reference it by? Notice what the Bible says. 1 Timothy, we're now in what chapter? Chapter 3. Now watch verse 15. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, how does God refer to the church? God says, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the what? Church of the living God. And how does he close the verse? The pillar and ground of truth. How does God refer to his church? The very pillar and ground of truth. Why does God have this incredible love? It's not an infatuation for sure. It's a love for truth. Why does God love that so much? It's very simple. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. When those arrogant Jews responded, they said, listen, man, we'd be Abraham's free, uh, seed, and we've never been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou then we shall be made free? Jesus then clarifies in verse 34 of John 8, and he says, whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. Christ wants us to understand that sin not only causes pain, it is the literal source of slavery. And there's only one thing that can make people free from sin, and that is truth. Thank God, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. My brothers and sisters, I want you to think with me. Jesus knows that the truth has so much power. And he raised up the church to be messengers of truth by way of precept and example. You see, I'm a black man, in case you haven't noticed. And I speak with authority. The solution to black on black crime or white on black crime, it does not matter if it is a police officer doing the killing or another brother on the street doing the killing. The solution never has been and never will be going on a march. I want you to listen to what I'm saying to you. I know that what I'm saying to you is authoritative. The solution to seeing a bunch of black people getting killed is not to go on march, marches, 
to gather a group of politicians and to get all the news networks to show up and to record us and for us to go into people's faces and say, stop killing us. You know, I watched one of those articles where somebody yells in the person's face, stop killing us. And I thought to myself, you know what text came to my mind? I'm a man of scripture. And I often find that there are scriptures that are very relevant to the things happening in our world today. And when that person looked that person in the eyes and they said, stop killing us, I know they meant it. I know they were screaming out of desperation because they just don't know what else to do. But the text that came to my mind was, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then how can you do good when you're accustomed to doing evil? You think you can get people to stop doing evil because you yell in their face to stop doing it? You think that you can remove bigotry from the heart of a man or a woman because you tell them to stop being a bigot? Racism is a sin issue. And until the axe is laid to that root, every other effort will bear very little fruit. When we look at the LGBT lifestyle, again, as long as we open up the word. See, a lot of churches are closing the word and opening their minds. That's the crisis we're in. We have closed the straight words of God, and now we're getting all philosophical. This is why the church is in trouble. And God wants us to understand that it's not even so much a, a man-to-man issue, a woman-to-woman issue. It's a sin issue. Don't get caught up in smoke screens. There are a lot of wickedness and crimes and evil that's happening in our world, and God has the solution, but that solution is, has to be found in something that's so powerful that it can actually destroy sin. There's only one man I know that can do that. Well, I can go to many religions, and I've sat around many. I used to be Muslim myself. So I understand many tenets of Islam. I used to roll with the Hebrew Israelites. I understand many things with my Hebrew Israelite brothers and sisters. But it's funny, this always seems to be the common denominator, and I love it personally. When I ever, whenever I get to travel and I meet my brothers and sisters from all sorts of walks of life, religious walks of life, I love to talk to them. And when we start talking, when we start vibing, I always get to this very key question for me. Because I find that this key question is so important that if you can't answer this right, it seems like nothing else matters. My wife and I, my family and I, we used to love on Sunday mornings sometimes when we lived in Georgia. We would go to one of our favorite restaurants. It was called Soul Vegetarian. And man, we would go to Soul Vegetarian and they would make you some pancakes. Healthy. No sin in it. Good, health-reformed food. And we would go ahead and go in there, and we would, you know, kind of make our orders and place our stuff. And there was a brother that I used to always see, Abba Zikri. And brother Abba Zikri would come up to me, older gentleman, used to walk up Stone Mountain, you know, and just, you know, healthy guy, fit guy. So I got used to seeing him, he got used to seeing me. 
So he would always try to indoctrinate me to some of the Hebrew Israelite teachings. So I would just be like, okay, Brother Zikri, what you got for me today? Because I'm like, I, I see you from afar, but I know you're coming. So just go ahead, bring it. What you got? Brother Zikri would come up to me. Hey, brother. And, you know, he start throwing out his doctrines. And he starts throwing in Hebrew words and starts throwing in all this stuff. Starts talking about the land that, you know, we as a people got to get over to and all this other stuff. And I said, Brother Zikri, can I ask you one question? He said, sure. I said, what is sin? And Brother Zikri just, well, it's doing wrong. I said, how do we define what's wrong? Well, I mean, you, you, just, you just know it's wrong. I said, but doesn't Solomon the wise man say that there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death? He said it twice, Proverbs 14, 12, Proverbs 16, 25. I mean, the man said it twice. Must really mean what he's saying. He didn't know what to say to me, so I told him, I said, sin is lawlessness. And we're not talking about violating running a red light. We're talking about God's law. Not that we should run red lights. God's law is very clear. Obey the laws of the land as long as they don't violate the laws of God. Don't want nobody leaving here saying, Brother Lemon told us to run red lights. He said, okay, and then I said, now, here's my question. What's the solution to sin? I love asking that question. It gets to the bottom line when I talk to my Muslim brothers, my Buddhist brothers, my Hebrew Israelite brothers. I said, what is sin? And then what I want to know is what's the solution to it? Because I already know the answer. There will be no victory over sin. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it crystal clear that I thank God that giveth us, verse 54, the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what it boils down to. And so God wants you and God wants me to get victory over the thing that causes so much pain to his heart and to ours, and that is sin. That is the crux of our message, is to show people that there is a power source out there that can enable us to live above the calls even of our own sinful natural heart. This is the gospel. Like I told you the other night, a gospel that's not practical is a worthless gospel. How long are we going to keep disrespecting our brides? How long are we going to keep disrespecting our husbands? How long are we going to continue to just be who we are to the point that sometimes we brag about it? Well, that's just who I am. You ever heard somebody say that? Look, that's just who I am. That's just me. Like it or love it. Brothers and sisters, you don't want to stay who you are. I don't want to stay who I am. Because I know for sure I will not have my eternal inheritance. God needs to do an extreme makeover for us to make it into those celestial joys. And so I started to study this thing out. And as I started to study it out, I started wondering, how exactly is sin birthed? And God actually helped us this morning in Sabbath school, but now I'm going to bring us back to remind us. Go back to James chapter 1. Watch this. In James, the first chapter, I started to look at it, and I said, all right, I've learned the cure is always found in the cause. The more that we identify the cause of our problems, the easier it 
the easier it is to embrace the cure to our problems. The Bible says in the book of James, what chapter are we going to? Chapter 1. Very good. In James chapter 1, I want you to see what the Bible says. Now watch this. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, let no man say when he is what? Tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither what? Tempteth he any man. Are we clear God does not tempt us? Please understand that. God tests us, but God does not tempt us. You understand that? A test is given to make you better. Isn't that the truth? Any teacher that cares about their student, you test them because you want to make sure that they're embracing the education so that way they can have a better experience in life. Isn't that right? So God has no problem with testing us because the end of a test is always to make you better. But the devil is the one that tempts us because a temptation is always to pull you down and make you worse. That's why the Bible says God does not tempt his people. So never, ever put temptation on God. When you're tempted, that is the devil and our own cultivations. But that's not God. Continuing now, it says, continuing in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his, what are those two words? Own lust. There's something going on in my heart that I want really bad, and the passion for it is getting so strong that eventually I'm going to do what the next verse says. So what happens is there's a passion, there's a desire that I have that is seeking to pull me in a direction that I know is going to take me down. It's going to make me worse, it's going to hurt me, and it's going to hurt other people. Okay? Now, going on, it says in verse 15, then, when lust hath conceived, it's birthed, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. So when I started to look at it, the foundation of sin is the fulfilling of my own lusts. Do you understand that? Because God wants to give us victory over sin. But if he's going to give me victory over sin then he needs to help me with some of my lust issues. The word lust is simply an uncontrolled desire or passion for something. You don't just lust after men and women. You can lust after food. You can lust after power. You can lust after money. You get that? All right. So notice, the foundation of sin is when I want to do what I want to do. This is why Ellen White uses this term, which is totally accurate, All sin is selfishness. All of it. You cannot commit a sin without doing what self wants to do. You understand that? You can't commit a sin without doing what self wants to do. That's how it works. There's something I want regardless of what God says, regardless of what man says. I want it, and as sooner or later, I'm going to yield and to do it. So all sin has its roots in selfishness. But do you know that there's something in selfishness that we need to address? Because until we address this, 
victory over sin, it's still not as real. You see, to get victory over sin is to get victory over selfishness. To get victory over selfishness, did you know, do you know what's the foundation to all selfishness? Selfishness is self doing what it wants to do rather than what God or anybody else wants, right? Do you know what's foundational to all selfishness? It's that thing right there. Pride. Pride. The foundation to all forms of selfishness is pride. And as pride is tickled, tantalized, and cultivated, it increases a selfish desire, and then that selfish desire is pursued, and then it brings forth sin. So to truly get victory over sin is to get victory over selfishness. And to truly get victory over selfishness, we need to get victory over pride. The more that God can help us overcome this wicked thing called pride. You see, if you really think about it, we've all been duped to some degree. I mean, I'm a black man again, so you know what I used to believe in? Black pride. Today, if you're gay, somebody's going to talk about gay pride. If somebody is Latino, Latino pride. Everybody's proud. Used to be a song we used to listen to in our home by a man by the name of James Brown. And he used to say, say it loud. And then everybody would say, I'm black and I'm proud. And it was cultivated inside many of us. This thing called pride. And I began to study it out because I said, Lord, this is really the issue. Do you know that pride can creep in ministry? We can even be proud in serving God. Can you imagine that? Some of y'all looking like, of course, absolutely. Pride is so deadly. I started to study it out because, you know, it's funny. Black pride, gay pride, this pride, that pride, all this pride. You know, one thing I've learned when I study the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, if there's one thing that God does not speak favorably of or celebrate is man. God does not speak about the greatness of man in scripture. The scripture is a revelation of our true condition. You never see God. You know, I was, talk, I was doing a class with my children and we were talking about self-esteem. Because, you know, in the world, they tell us we got to have better self-esteem. you got to have better self-esteem. We must build up our self-esteem. One of the problems with our youth today is that they don't have enough self-esteem. Man, I'm listening to that thing, and I said, you know what? Let's study this. I said, let's study it, children. We were doing class. You know, my wife and I tag-teamed together in our homeschooling. I said, let's go ahead and do a class on, on self-esteem. So we started to do it, and we started to talk about it. Self-esteem, synonymous, self-confidence. Something you develop confidence in yourself. And I asked my children one by one, I said, how many of you believe that we need a little bit more self-esteem? And at first they were kind of like, um, well, maybe. And I said, okay, well, let me show you this way. Go to 1 John 5. I'm going to bring you to a text of scripture that a lot of times we read through it too fast. We're going to read it slow. I want you to watch this. 1 John chapter 5, 
Because I've learned something a long time ago. God is not interested in self-esteem. Because God does not want us to have confidence in self. This is the issue. Once confidence in self comes in, it is the perfect red carpet to invite pride. So what does the Bible say in 1 John 5? I love it. We sing this song, don't we? <laughs> when we sing the song in 1 John 5, 14, it says, and this is the... Now, what are the next two words? No, sorry. This is the confidence that we have. What are the next two words? So stop right there. Where is our confidence supposed to be? In him. Our confidence is in him. I don't read anything in scripture that encourages us to have confidence in yourself. That is a very foreign teaching. By the way, it's a very worldly teaching. And it belongs in the world and not in God's movement. These false forms of psychology are dangerous. And so it is that the Bible teaches our confidence. Yes, we can have confidence, but our confidence is in him. Now, why? What is wrong with having confidence in a little bit of me? What's wrong with the fact I know how to sing? I know how to teach. I know how to do a lot of stuff. What's so wrong with me having a little confidence in myself? First of all, we're deceived because go to the book of Acts 17. Notice what the Bible says in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. Now, I believe what Acts says right here. If we understood this verse carefully, I don't know how any of us could boast about anything. The Bible says in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, and it says it right there in verse 28. Acts, the 17th chapter, right there in verse 28. What does the text say? The Bible says in Acts 17, verse 28, it says... For, what are the next two words? In him. Now, no, notice this. For in him, we do three things. What are those three things? We live, we move, and have our being. Do you know that but for the grace of God, you can't even blink your right eye and then blink your left? But for the grace of God, you cannot put one foot in front of the other foot. And you could definitely not go foot and then side and then backwards and then back into your spot. Do you know it's the grace of God that enables you to even do that? You know how I know? I used to work at a company in New York called YAI, Young Adults Institute. I worked with people who were mentally disabled and dually diagnosed. And we used to go outside and have to take them to go to the restaurant or, or to the grocery store to get food. And I remember one young lady who would walk with us. And we would walk, and we were just walking, and we came up on a curb. Now, you know how we do it. When we're walking on a curb, how many of you have to look at the curb and then walk over it and all of that? Do, do you do that? When you walk on a curb, don't you see the curb coming? You're just like, you're talking to your friends like, yeah, yeah, you know, da, 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 and you just lift your leg up over the curb and you just keep talking, right? I'm walking with my friend. She was one of the patients at YAI. And as we're walking there, she's just walking with us. And I'm like, yeah, you know, because da, 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 and da, da, and I start walking and I look to the side and I notice she wasn't there. I look behind me. She's way back still at the curb. She's at the curb doing this. She's at the curb, and she's going. Come, Dwayne, I need your help. Come, come, come. And I had to go over to her and take her hand, and then she would just go. 
and then she would start walking again. Things that we take for granted, things that we take for granted. When I had to show a gentleman how to hold a spoon, you and I could pick up a spoon and we could probably twiddle that thing between our fingers. This guy would have to pick up a spoon and he doesn't know how to use what's called his motor skills. We don't understand how blessed and privileged we are. These individuals have gone through trauma, they've gone through accidents, they were born with challenges, and so on. So things were not 100% as God planned for the human existence to be. So when you and I come in and our brains are functional, our bodies are functional, and everything else, we need to understand in him we live, we move, we have our being. I read in a little book called Medical Ministry, page 8, and it says that every heartbeat... It says every heartbeat, every nerve, every muscle, every cell moves throughout the body and is supervised by the great I am. The creator of the heavens and the universe actually watches you when you go to sleep. And he's literally looking over you and making sure heart's moving just fine. Cells are circulating beautifully through the system. Muscles are beautifully relaxing. Brain waves are functioning just fine. He oversees it all in him. So why in the world do you think you're great when you can preach? Why do you think you're great when you can teach? Why do you think you're great because you can sing? Why do we think we're great because of all these things that we've been privileged to do? But for the grace of God, you could not do any of these things. In him, we live and move and have our being. And that's why I believe Acts 17, 28 and 1 John 5, 14 are beautiful texts to put together. This is the confidence that we have in him. I reject and I rebuke the idea of self-esteem. Because the message is not to teach the people how to have more confidence in themselves. We are living in the time we need to have less confidence in ourselves and more confidence in God. It's the difference between true education and education in science falsely so-called. And so what God wants us to understand is that, listen, this thing called pride, you and I need to get rid of it. Get rid of the human pride, the black pride, the gay pride. It's all of the devil. God has no, he does not have his hand in any of these forms of pride. The Bible is very clear in Proverbs 16 and verse 18 that pride comes before destruction. I don't want to prepare the way for destruction. Jesus says, I came to give life, and I came to give it more abundantly. So when we study this thing called pride, I looked it up in the Hebrew. The word pride, arrogancy, pomp, swelling. These are the things that are building up in our heart always. This is why I keep telling y'all this. Some of y'all don't listen very well, but I keep telling my people, stop complimenting me and stop complimenting preachers. You're hurting us when you do that. We can't handle it. I'm being straight up with you. We can't handle it. You keep telling us all this stuff, there's a little voice that starts to say, yeah, 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 you know, I actually am pretty good. I actually think I'm kind of wise. And it'll start to be proven because when, when, when you non-presenters, when you 
little coming to listen and, and listen to us. If you come to us trying to correct us with scripture, do you know that there's a bug that sometimes comes in the evangelist's mind that says, what, who, who do you think you are? I mean, how, how do you figure that? Have you been in the schools? Have you studied like I've studied? Have you read the nine volumes? When a man says that to you, I just want you to know this. That's pride. When you are lovingly coming to someone to say, brother or sister, uh, you know, I just wanted to share something with you that I observed of what you said. And, so, and when they immediately come back, have you been in ministry as long as I have? Have you gone through the conflict ages or the nine volumes? When they start talking that stuff, just know, Lord have mercy, pride is in the mix. Father, help me and help them because we just identified the pride. And now what's going to happen is if we don't check it, it's going to swell. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is the thing that's even in our homes. This is why there are certain husbands and certain wives that just cannot get along. Do you know the foundation of every argument in the home? Do you know the foundation of every argument in the home? Proverbs chapter 13. You got to look at this text. Boy, when I read this text, I said, Lord, have mercy. Look at this thing. Proverbs 13. And it's not just arguments in the home. Arguments amongst ministries. Arguments amongst brethren. All this fighting that happens amongst each other. What is it that we are told in Scripture is the guaranteed foundation? Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs, we're going to what chapter? All right, chapter 13. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs, the 13th chapter. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, Right there in verse 10. What's the first word? Only. Can anything else fit? No. It says only by what? Pride cometh contention. Only. If somebody is having contention with another, somebody's proud. Somebody's proud. Only by pride comes contention. You understand that? God wants to hit this thing. He wants to give you real victory over sin, not that talk victory over sin. Oh, there's a lot of meetings, camp meetings, group meetings, gathering meetings, conferences, Bible studies, and everybody's talking about victory over sin. But God wants to give you real victory over sin. And you cannot get victory over sin until you get victory over selfishness. And the foundation of all selfishness is pride. So if we're going to fight, let's fight intelligently. We know that pride was built up and began in the heart of Lucifer, didn't it? Let's go through that text. You remember in Isaiah 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said where? It always starts in the heart. That's why you need to guard your imaginations. We are told in inspiration that the first work of reformation is to reform the imagination. I believe that's volume 1, 469. Is that right? I believe you can check me on it. But nevertheless, we are to guard our imaginations. Now watch this. He says, for I have said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. This was Satan's self-exaltation. And notice the key thing that was in it. He constantly was saying what? I, I've learned this. Sin and pride both have something very much in common. They both have I in the center of it. The foundation of all sin, I. The foundation of pride, I. It's a constant gawking and gazing and looking at and uplifting self. God says, I want my people to, I want my people to pay attention to this. I want you to notice this. This is the issue, my brothers and sisters. So at the end of the day, what really is pride? Pride is when we exalt ourselves above God and his word. That's what pride is. Foundationally, pride is when we exalt ourselves above God and his word. Now, this is not enough. I, you know, I would have stopped here, but the spirit of God said, no, take it further, Dwayne. And so what we're going to do next is we're now going to look at some key examples of this because we need to understand it and how it works. So then that way, by the grace of God, we can experience some real victory over pride, which will be victory over selfishness, which will be victory over sin. Now watch this. Pride. Two roads, at least. I'll say at least. I always leave room because there's so much more God knows than me. But there are at least two definite roads of pride. And I want you to see these two roads. And when I show you these two roads, I want you to ask yourself, be prayerful. Lord, which road am I on? Because no one in this room is exempt from experiencing pride. Not a single one, including the man that stands before you giving the message. I promise you, this message is just as much for me as it is for you. In fact, I'll correct it. It's more for me than for you. Because when you start traveling, and when you got people taking you all over the world, and when people begin to look at you as some level of an authority upon the word of God, etc., there is always a voice that's telling you how great you are rather than how great thou art. Always. Any preacher tells you otherwise, they're lying. That thing hits you. There's a voice. I didn't say we all surrender to it, but there is guaranteed. There's a voice. And there are many preachers in this room that know what I'm talking about. There's a voice that lets you know how wonderful, smart, great you are, et cetera, et cetera. And even while you're talking humility, your heart is actually swelling in the process with conceit. I wish those were my words. That's Christ's Object Lessons, page 159. Now watch this. Pride. Two roads. Notice the roads. Number one. When you think of pride, two roads. Number one, there's open pride. The second road is called hidden pride. We struggle with one of these two, if not both. Open pride, hidden pride. Now the question is, how do we know the difference? Thank the word, thank the Lord, the word of God. He, he, God has all the answers in scripture. Now watch this. Open pride, we can look at strengths. Let's go to Luke, the 18th chapter. 
Open pride is when we look at, stare, gawk, and constantly spend time focusing on our strengths. Let's notice what it says. Luke, the 18th chapter. In Luke, the 18th chapter, I want you to watch what the Bible says. Luke, the 18th chapter. Open pride. I'm not even trying to hide it. I'm going to let you know. Luke 18, and watch what the Bible says as we consider verses 10 to 13. Now watch this. The Bible says in Luke 18, verses 10 to 13. If you're there, say amen. Luke 18, 10 to 13. The Bible says, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Open pride is when we consistently consider our strengths. We look at our strengths not in a spirit of thankfulness to God and understanding a higher duty of service to our fellow man. That's a good way to acknowledge your strength. God is the one that gave me my strength, and I am therefore held doubly responsible on how I use my strength to be more low and a servant to others. That's a good way to acknowledge it. This guy didn't do that. This brother was there, you know, I'm glad I'm not messed up like these people in the churches that constitute Babylon. I'm glad I'm not messed up like them. We look at people that are living contrary lifestyles to our lifestyle. And we say, I'm so thankful I'm not messed up like they are. These people are sick and disgusting. I'm so glad I'm not sick and disgusting. Now, God says, excuse me, there are things that you and I may do that makes him sick and disgusted. Makes him want to vomit. Isn't that right? But we're, we become more and more blinded by those realities when we're busy consulting our strengths. You know, people will be lost as a result of consulting their strengths. You remember in Matthew 7? Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, these are lost people, many will say unto me, didn't I prophesy? What are they consulting? Their strengths. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out devils? Didn't I do many wonderful works? What are they talking about? Their strengths. What they did that was good, at least in their eyes. But what was the problem? Jesus said, you did not do the will of my father. You see, God's will more than anything, God is not so much interested in your activity. There's a quotation that I actually put it on my watch and I put it on my phone and I set it for four reminders in the day every day. Four times in the day, my watch will go off and it'll just go bing and then I'll just look and it'll, it'll just pop up. And you know what my watch and my phone reminds me of every day? Gospel Workers, page 204. What a man is has greater influence than what he says. Four times a day. 
I said, Lord, this is so powerful, I, I want a reminder on this. Four times a day, at least, my phone and my watch goes off to let me, to remind me, Dwayne, always remember, what a man is has greater influence than what he says. And I, I'm going to tell you the true story. I'm a real, I'm a real guy. Did you know I'm flesh? Did you, you touch me and you can see it. Watch this. There was a time I was in my home and I got agitated about things that was happening outside of the way that I felt things should have been happening. So I started to get a little agitated. And as I got agitated, I was like, you know what? I need to address this because this is, this is just, this is ridiculous and this needs to stop. And as I'm getting ready to go to the other room to address it, bing! What a man is has greater influence than what he says. Do you know I about face? My wife don't even know. I about face? Father. It was like the Spirit of God said, angels, quick. You know, like hit the button. And that button just hit. What a man is has greater influence than what he says. My brothers and sisters, the problem with these people Yes, there are people doing false forms of gospel work. I get that. But there are some people that's doing right forms of gospel works, but they're not converted. You see, the will of God in verse 21 of Matthew 7, that will of the Father that they were not doing, is spelled out in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. It says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God's will is that he wants you to be holy as he's holy. When you and I are holy as he's holy, then we can do holy works with much more power. But as Brother Mike just showed, ministers practicing some of the most vile and base sins while they're proclaiming the gospel. It'll void your power. One sin cherished will neutralize the entire power of the gospel. That's what Jesus told that rich young man in Mark chapter 10. He said, one thing thou lackest. That one thing cost that man his whole salvation. One game with sin can neutralize the whole power of the gospel. And so God wants us to understand, listen, this issue is a major issue. Do not, they were consulting their strengths, but they paid no attention to their weaknesses. So God says, please, guard your heart. Whatever it is good that you and I can do, Understand that there was a power source that enabled I to do the, enabled you and I to do the good that we're doing. And that's why Jesus said, whenever you do good. Do you know Jesus loves us so much he told us what to say when you do something good? You know what he told us to say? Go to Luke 17. Let me show you what he told us to say. When you do a good thing, I want you to do this next time. If you're in Luke 18, it's just one chapter over. So go to Luke 17. I want you to watch this. If you do a good thing, you teach a good class. You do a good deed for your wife, for your husband, and that demon starts coming in, man, you great. Man, you, 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 you just, you're, you're incredible. You're better than everybody. I bet you there's nobody else in the church that did it like you did. When that voice starts speaking to you and starts saying all that wicked stuff, Jesus actually told us what to say when we do what's right. Luke 17, the Bible says in Luke, the 17th chapter, notice what the text says. Luke 17, we're going to go ahead and start at verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. So he's saying, you know, you're commanding your servant, make my food, 
get me set up first, and then after that, then you can go ahead and eat. Now, what does he ask in verse 9? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? What's the answer? I trow not. In other words, no. He doesn't, ask, he doesn't say thank you because he's like, you did something you were supposed to do. So notice what it goes on to say in verse 10. So likewise ye, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say what? We are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which it was our duty to do. Can you imagine? God knows how wicked our hearts are that he actually told us what to say when we obey. He knows that's how messed up our hearts are. Because Again, when we do right, what's one of the things we feel? You ever held, you ever held the door open for somebody? True story. Tell me, you know, you tell me if you, you relate. You ever held the door open for somebody? And somebody walks through the door and they look at you? And they just keep walking. What goes on in your mind? Huh? You understand that? It's like, let me see them try to come in this room again. You understand? Natural. Natural. Rises up in the heart. Natural. And all of a sudden, we say they are unworthy of a second chance. What if God would have said we are unworthy of a second chance? Do you see how, if I may say it, how messed up we are? I mean, if you really see it, you know what I'm saying? You do something good for somebody. The goal of God is to do good because it's good to do good. But so often we are so merit-oriented that it's like, I got to do good so I can get a reward. I got to get something back. And Jesus is trying to transform that because that's going to mess up heaven. It's going to create a Lucifer part two, and we're going to go through this stuff all over again. And Jesus is like, I'm not going through this again. Sin shall not rise up. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. Nahum chapter one and verse nine. It's not going to happen again. Why? Because he's going to do an extreme makeover on every single one of us. We got to get to that place that when I open the door, you walk through, we say, all right. And then we just keep going. Keep going. Don't even think about it. Don't allow your mind to dwell on it. I can't believe that person did. Can you imagine? Because the more you start talking it, you're going to get mad. Just don't talk about it. Just be like, okay. And just keep going. Just be happy that you bless people. One way or another, God lets no good deed go unnoticed for long. Sooner or later, it'll come back. Well, let's bring some of these things to a close. Hidden. Hidden pride. How does hidden pride work? I was praying this morning. God is good. I said, Lord, I, don't, I am very afraid of adding to the word of God. Not because of, oh, I don't, I don't want my name taken out of the, I don't want to be, you know, plagues added to me. That's not my only motivations for those type of things. But I'm just like, Lord, I just want to honor you. I want to represent you right because I know you don't always get represented right. And you are like my father, like, like I love you for real, and I want to represent you right. So that, that's what, so I'm living on my bed, and I'm just like, man, where can I find it? And my wife, she was getting ready, and she heard me. I was just like, what did I say? I don't know what I said, something like praise God, or oh, that was so sweet. I said something like that, and then my wife was like, what, what, what happened? And I was like, I can't tell you. I said, I got to save it for the message. So this is the point. So it's like, <laughs> this is it. Man, I was studying, studying and praying. I was like, Lord, really? Where's hidden pride in scripture? Now, don't forget, remember what pride is, right? Pride is when we exalt ourselves above God and his word. Remember that? 
Okay, we saw that exemplified through Lucifer himself. He's exalting himself above God and his word. Now, watch this. So we got this open. So now, open pride, focusing on our strengths. Hidden pride is when we focus on our weaknesses. Now, watch this. Go to the book of Exodus chapter 3. I was like, Father, where's an example of this in Scripture? I want to be faithful. I don't want to add to the text. I just want to be real with the text. Exodus chapter 3. Watch this. In Exodus, the third chapter, and I saw this. I said, boy, I tell you, the Bible leaves nothing uncovered. I don't know why people don't spend more time in the Bible. I am serious. Look at Exodus chapter 3, 7 through 12, right? So Exodus chapter 3, 7 through 12, God commissions Moses to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So God and Moses are having a dialogue. You know, God reveals his power through the burning bush. And now watch what happens. So in Exodus 3, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that excuse me, up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, and unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the, compre- the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The word of God was clear. Come now and do this. I'm going to deliver with a mighty hand, etc. What does Moses say in verse 11? And Moses said unto God, who am I? That I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, verses 12 and 13. And he said, certainly I will be with thee. So God reassures him. Certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon the mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God tells him his name. So notice, God tells Moses what to do. God lets Moses, I got you. I'm going to do this because he did not say you shall deliver or you shall come down. God says, I'm going to come down. Moses is representing God. You understand that? God's like, look, I'm taking this thing on myself, Moses. I'm asking you to be a messenger. God says, I'm not asking you to be a power source. I'm just asking you to be a messenger. But what does Moses say? He consults his weakness. Well, who am I? How's Pharaoh going to listen to me? This is what is going on in his mind. Then in Exodus 4, it gets worse. In Exodus 4 now... Go over one chapter. What does it say in Exodus 4? In Exodus 4 and verse 1, it says, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto me. So again, he's consulting his own weaknesses. He's consulting what he cannot do, even though the God of the universe is telling him, I'm the one that's going to do it. You're my messenger. Verses 10 to 14. Then it says, And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, now I want you to notice that the Lord just simply responds, right? Lord, I can't do that. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. God says, all right, well, let me tell you this. But Lord, the people will say that I never saw you. All right, well, here's this. But Lord, you know, I'm, I'm slow of speech. Do you know that this is actually a form of pride? It's the one that's not so obvious. That's why it's called hidden. What is Moses still doing? He's doing the foundation of pride, which is to exalt yourself above God and his words. He's doing that, but it's a hidden pride. Some people's pride is on their strengths. Other people's pride is on their weaknesses. But at the end of the day, we're doing what we want and not what God wants. Continuing, it says in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Verse 13. Verse 13. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. Again, Moses is rejecting the call of God. So what does God do now in verse 14? And the Lord and the anger of the Lord. It's getting different now. God is saying, Moses, listen, there comes a point in time, parents, you, know, you can learn a lot about parenthood in these verses. The child, but mommy and daddy, okay, well, what we're going to need to do is this. Next, mom and dad, okay, no problem, son, we're going to do this. But mom and dad, okay, well, listen, let's just try it again. But mom and dad, listen. (laughs) There comes a point in time that is part of parenthood. The father is to represent the sterner virtues, it says in Adventist home. So there comes a point in time, you got to look them in the eye and you got to say, listen. I mean what I'm telling you right now, and I need you to go do it, and I don't want you to talk back to me on it anymore. Do you understand? You're being mean, and the world is actually cultivating this stuff now. Folks calling phone numbers and telling people to come to their house and all this stuff. Brothers and sisters, there comes a point in time where you have to take that stand. It says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the And, And God just began to walk him through one more time. My point is very simple. We're, we're at this close and, oof, oh, I wanted to get to this thing. But nevertheless, the key is, is that pride is a great challenge. And the only solution to pride is the opposite of pride. And the opposite of pride is humility. We'll cover this in the last few seconds here. When Jesus walked on this earth, Jesus said, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. Why? He said, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus' whole life was doing that which pleased the Father in John 8 and verse 29. His whole life. It got to the point that as a result of him demonstrating his whole life being subservient to the Father, that the Bible says that eventually 
Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ was the complete opposite of Satan. Satan was exalting himself before God. Jesus was humbling himself before God. The way that we come, oh, it's so sad, my brothers. I'm trying to think, how could I do this with you? Because it, I feel like it would be a crime for me not to show you this. True humility, skepticism and unbelief are not humility. Implicit belief in Christ's word is true humility, true self-surrender. Desire of Ages 5.35. That is what humility is. Humility is not, hello, brother. How are you doing, friend? What's going on, my brother and my sister? Sometimes we say, man, that guy's so humble because he talks soft. <laughs> or whenever they talk to you, there's always a low position. Like, you doing all right? You doing okay? You doing all right? <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that these are good virtues when it's genuine. I do believe that when the humility of Christ clothes a man, you're not going to be like, hey, how you doing? You know, and all in people's face. You will have a gentle you'll have a gentle disposition about you. I do believe that. You will have a gentle disposition where you will kind of, hey, brother, how are you? But sometimes we, we make that humility, the fact that, man, they always bend down when they talk, or they always talk low. They never dress nice. They always seem to dress really out of date and, and, and just, you know, and we say, look at how humble he is. As if you can't wear a nice outfit and still be humble. Uh-uh, we got to watch that stuff, seriously. Get that out of your mind. That is not biblical. That is fanatical. You can dress 2018 and still be humble. The key is don't go around showing your nakedness. Don't get me confused. And I don't know. Is it a man? Is it a woman? I don't know. Get that stuff out. You understand that? No cross dressing. No effeminate. None of these things that bring forth confusion. Do not wear stuff that blinds my eyes because your stuff is dazzling in my face. There are principles of dress that we definitely need to keep in mind if we are the children of God. But we need to erase this thing about the more unkept my hair is, the more, you know, trashy my clothes look or ripped out or whatever. This is humility. Get that out of your head, please. You can have a nice car and still be humble. You can live in a decent home and have a nice home and still be humble. So please don't go there. The bottom line is, is that true humility is simply implicit belief in the word of God. That's true humility. Now, I need y'all to write this down because I'm not going to be able to present this anymore. And, 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 and I apparently was enjoying myself too much of this message. So the key I want you to see is this. This, this, this is the, to me, I couldn't wait to get to this slide. So what we're going to do is do is this, and it'll take about four minutes, and then we'll be done. Here we go. Practical steps to experiencing true humility. I am going to put out a challenge to each of us. If you know pride is a beast, not just outside of my heart, but inside of my heart, I want every man and every woman, every boy and every girl in this room to please pay attention to these last slides. I know the Spirit of God gave it to me. Watch this. How can we truly address the issue of pride? Number one is by experiencing God's humility. But when we go through the humility of God, I want you to watch some practical steps. These are not all, but these are some good steps. 
for the next 30 days. I'm going to give you a challenge. I'm going to give you a challenge. What's our challenge? Are you ready? Number one, every day, I want you to study something about the closing scenes of Jesus' life. Study something about the closing scenes of Jesus' life. If you are Seventh-day Adventist, I'm going to encourage you to read volume two of the Testimonies to the Church, page 200 to 215, The Cost of the Cross. It is hard to read that and not really see what your Savior did for you. And it's going to bring about in your heart a desire to more lovingly follow him. In addition to that, I'm going to encourage you to study the book, the chapter Calvary from Desire of Ages. Study the chapter Calvary from Desire of Ages. These are just suggestions. Then study as many lessons from the cross as you can find in the scriptures. When you read Galatians 6.14, I'm crucified unto the world and the world to me. That's a lesson from the cross. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross in Isaiah 53, it says he complained not. That's a lesson we learn about the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and those people said his blood be on us and on our children, Christ says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Gather as many lessons from the cross that you can find and seek to implement it in your life where it is applicable. Number two, take time for communion with God and pray three times per day. Psalms 55, 17, evening, morning, and at noon, will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. I want you to take three times in the day. Do it according to your schedule. Evening is a period of time. Morning is a period of time. Noon is a period of time. Pick somewhere in those time frames. But every evening, every morning, and somewhere in the noon, pause from whatever you're doing, get to a quiet place, and spend some time talking to the master. Number three, every quiet moment you have, sing a sacred song and repeat favorite victory verses to yourself. You see all those victory verses? I, I thought to myself, Sister Carol, Sister Mike, do you know that I wrote, you, you can clearly see, I put this in my notes, victory verses. I did that this morning, and here you are putting it right here, victory verses. That's the spirit of God. You see that? Lord, the Lord's like, I gotta, I'm going to coordinate this puzzle. Beautiful. Start thinking of songs. When you're in those quiet moments, washing dishes, walking through the house, just start lifting up a song. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. You just walk through the house. Sing sacred songs. Whenever you get a chance and you're just going through the house and you just have a quiet moment, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God. And you start quoting Jude 24 and 25. You, all those quiet moments, take a time to sing a sacred song, repeat favorite victory verses. Next 30 days, point number four, create practical barriers from going into indulging habits. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, if you see others fall into a fault, fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But then it says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
So therefore, consider yourself. What are your weaknesses? Become acquainted with your weaknesses. And then whatever weaknesses you have, set up the appropriate barriers. That makes it difficult for you to go back to those weaknesses. Some of us need to go back to dial-up. Because your high speed is getting you in trouble. Some of us need to get rid of smartphones and go back to flip phones. Because maybe your smartphone is getting you in trouble. It's distracting the daylights out of you. You get that? Practical barriers. Psalms 119.11, for, uh, for the moments of sacred song and ver- victory verses, that's the one that says, I hid thy word in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Point number five. Ooh, I love this one. Immediately act on what God says to you without hesitation. This is very important. Immediately act. Psalms 119 and verse 60 says, I made haste and I delayed not to keep thy commandments. Once the Spirit of God says to you, you haven't prayed to me today, you should spend some time in prayer. Stop what you're doing and immediately go and pray. Because the more you consult yourself and say, well, you know, I got to think about my schedule. I got to think. You're going to immediately, you'll literally the whole time will pass by. When the Lord pricks your heart, take a look at this word. You haven't read my word at all today. Pick up your Bible. Take some time to pray. You should go call that friend. You haven't spoken to them in weeks. You don't even know if they're dead or alive. Once the Spirit of God pricks your heart to do something, immediately act on what God says to you without hesitation. Next, be intentional in sharing Christ with those who know him not. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, he who waters shall be watered also. He who waters, the more you share Christ with others and you watch what Christ does for them, it literally creates a fire in your own belly. Take some time. For the next 30 days, make a covenant with God. Let this be your lifestyle. Along with everything else you do, figure out, how can I fit this in, Lord? And the more you do it, don't be surprised if you find, wow, my mind has been so fixed on Jesus. I don't have any time to consult how great I am and what I'm doing and all these other things. It is powerful. And you know what? Not only is it powerful, we have a promise. You know what the promise is? Let me show you the promise. Here's the promise. We are promised. Pride and self-esteem cannot flourish in the hearts that keep fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. Cannot. God says, I got the package. God says, I can kill that pride in every single one of our hearts. Do you see? You see, I'm going to let you in on my trick. My trick is very simple. If you do it for 30 days, I hope it becomes habit that you don't stop. I'm letting you in on it right now. I'm hoping you get such a paradigm shift in the way you live that you're going to say, why in the world would I stop doing this when I think about how much my heart has been lifted, my anxieties were gone, I seem to have had a peace that passes all under. Why would I want to stop, though it's day 30? How about day 300, 3,000? How about day millennium? My brothers and sisters, Christ simply says, victory over sin is necessary and it's possible. But to get victory over sin is to get victory over selfishness. And to get victory over selfishness is to get victory over pride. And the only thing that can kill pride is the humility of Christ. That humility of Christ must be our focus, our study. And that's why I'm encouraging you, meditate on those principles that we put up on the screen. 
You meditate on those principles. Make it your practical reality. My hope and my prayer is that God will show you wondrous things out of this law. Question. How many of us understood the study? Amen. We are going to do a question and answer session later this evening. Please write them down. We want all of your questions. Don't hold back. Give us everything that you need to know. We want to do all that we can to make this weekend as edifying as possible. My brothers and sisters, God has the solution to our problems. God can kill that pride in every single one of us. We're all infected. Thank God Jesus is the remedy. And it's a practical approach to Jesus that'll give us the victory we need. And so I know that you want that victory. And if you want that victory, let's go ahead and so signify by standing to our feet together. You will find that all God's biddings are enablings. He's not going to leave you stranded. He's not going to tell you what to do without giving you all the power of heaven and earth to get it done. And so thank the Lord that victory is ours. My hope and prayer is that we have some really transformed homes. Transform lives. Pride is in the home. Pride is in the church. Pride is everywhere. But God has real victorious power to give to each of us. Let us go ahead and let's close with a word of prayer and thank God for what he's done in our hearts today. Father, we praise you. We thank you. Lord, we love you. And our desire is to love you more. We thank you so much that as real as pride is, even more doubly real is the humility of Christ. My hope and my prayer is that through the experience of true humility, explicit belief and cooperation with your words through the power and the merits of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you might show all of us how to overcome that open and hidden pride. That we will no longer consult our strengths nor our weaknesses, but we'll look unto the hills from whence comes our help, knowing our help comes from the Lord. If we're weak, we'll look to your strength. If we think we're strong, Lord, we will look to see how strong you are and may it cause us to be abased. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we'll have such a real victory that our lives will never be the same. Keep us unto this end, we ask, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.